On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. The psychologist Kimberly Wilson works in whole-body mental health, one of the most astonishing frontiers we are on as a species. Discoveries about the gut microbiome, for example, and the gut-brain axis, the fascinating vagus nerve, and the power of the neurotransmitters we hear about in piecemeal ways in discussions around mental health. The phrase mental health itself makes less and less sense in light of the wild interactivity we can now see between what we've falsely compartmentalized as physical, emotional, mental, even spiritual. And so much of what we're seeing brings us back to intelligence that has always been in the very words we use, gut instinct, as we say. It brings us back to something your grandmother was right about for reasons she would never have imagined. You are what you eat. There is so much actionable knowledge in the tour of the ecosystem of our bodies that Kimberly Wilson takes us on this hour. This is science that invites us to nourish the brains we need, young and old, to live in this world. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Kimberly Wilson runs a psychotherapy and nutrition practice in central London. She's published a book, How to Build a Healthy Brain. And she co-hosts an innovative podcast on BBC Radio 4 called Made of Stronger Stuff. That's where I discovered her. She came to the attention of many as a finalist in an early season of The Great British Bake Off. She grew up, as she tells it, eating both the West Indian food of her family and over-processed modern British fare. Something that I'm always interested in, whoever I'm speaking with, whatever the subject, is um, kind of tracing, you know, asking if you could, where, how you would trace the roots of the questions that drive you or the passions that drive you in your mm-hmm. earliest life, in the background of your childhood. There's a very arresting, I believe this is the first sentence of your book, um, which is so helpful. I grew up with an intimate knowledge of mental illness and neurodegenerative disease, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, schizophrenia, motor neuron disease, Guillain-Barre syndrome, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and depression all run in my immediate family. Mm. Taking a big breath. Um, Mm. So, I, I mean, I've also seen you say that you you knew you wanted to be a psychologist when you were 16, which makes sense to me with that sentence in mind. Mm. Yeah, it, there's a way in which I feel like none of us really owns entirely our trajectories. You know, there's no such thing as a, a self-made person. And no. if I had grown up in a family of musicians, I'm sure that I would be a concert pianist. Or if I'd grown up in a family of artists, I'm sure that it would have had an impact on my relationship to art and I'd visit galleries more often or something like that. But I grew up with this intimate awareness of brains that don't work, I guess, or brains Mm -hmm. that aren't working well. So that when I got into school and we were doing kind of biology lessons, I understood things like myelination and neurodegeneration and in motor neurons and this sort of stuff. And, And in a 
strange way it gave me a bit of a leg up in terms of understanding aspects of biology um, and aspects of psychology so these were subjects that kind of made sense to me quite early on that was the the path that I was yeah and became inquiry right they they, Mm. those questions lodged in you I and and also you when you were in the Great British Bake Off you shared kind of that your mother, she was mm. a really intuitive baker, and that mm. and that baking with her and kind of baking for her when her MS made it hard for her to stand. I, I see this this connection in your childhood between um, food as healing, not strictly the way you study it now, um, but but there it is. There's that picture. I'm not sure I would use. I see what you mean. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps not healing. I would say uh, care Mm. and of of life, you know, that kind of function of food, which is Mm. around living and needing to fulfill this very practical life need of nourishment and Mm. energy provision. And so, yes, it was kind of, although, you know, there was a book in my house called Foods That Harm and Foods That Heal. I I don't know how much science there is behind that title now. But um, growing up, it was a combination of the practical. People need to be fed and and food needs to be put on the table, but also of simple pleasures um, and that very quotidian joy and pleasure that Mm. comes from eating. Mm. So you have gone on to to be on in this ongoing investigation, and also you have become kind of a, a public educator on the science behind all of this. Um, and it's new, and yet mm-hmm. I, I know that I mean I've been hearing people talk about microbiome for a few years. It is very new. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite intrigued when I was just looking around. You know, there is actually a paragraph on. Because it has anything new is contested, right? It's suspect, and this is revolutionary to say. You know, a few centuries after the Enlightenment, in which we have built Western societies, idolizing the brain and the mind to discover mm-hmm. a new organ, which is called a second brain. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, I found on the National Center for Biotechnology Information of the NIS here, you know, the past decade has seen a paradigm shift in our understanding of the brain-gut axis. A comprehensive model is emerging that integrates the central nervous, gastrointestinal, and immune systems with this newly discovered organ. And then it talks about remarkable potential shown in studies for novel treatments, not only in gastrointestinal disorders, but psychiatric and neurological disorders, including Parkinson's disease, autism, anxiety, depression, among many others. You have been wrapping your mind around this and and also bringing it into your practice, I believe, into your writing. But it is a new word. I feel like, you know, we have to we have to kind of put this lexicon out there as part of our collective inheritance. So Mm. how would you start to describe what is the microbiome? So, yes, the microbiome is really the population of microorganisms. And we hear a lot about the bacteria, but there are also kind of viruses and archaea and yeasts, the fungi hanging out in there as well. So this population of diverse microorganisms that, you know, so that everything has a microbiome. So your skin has a microbiome, your mouth has a microbiome, all sorts of, you know, all over the body has its own microbiome. But the microbiome, we tend to be 
talking about in, in this type of conversation is the gut microbiome. So the microorganisms that populate the, the colon. And they aren't just kind of squatters. <laughs> they haven't just kind of moved in. They, right. they do earn their keep and they earn their keep um, really in this quite beautiful symbiotic relationship, which is they are able to digest and make good use of parts of our diets that we can't digest. So uh, largely fibre and polyphenol compounds that we don't have the enzymes to digest. They get down into the colon and the microorganisms can ferment it and their metabolites provide a whole range of beneficial uh, compounds and and, uh, activities for our bodies. So including the production of vitamins, the synthesis of short chain fatty acids, the synthesis of neurotransmitters that don't necessarily kind of cross into the brain, but can communicate, we think, with the brain, Um, helping to train our immune systems and keep our immune systems functioning well, All of this is the symbiotic relationship between the microorganisms in our guts, our diets and our overall kind of health and and genetics. So when when we talk about an organ, is the organ Mm. the gut microbiome or are all the microbiome, (laughs) whatever the the plural is of microbiome, Is the skin? Are the, is the microbiome on your skin and in your mouth also part of that organ in your gut? Or, or when we talk about the organ, are we really just talking about the gut? I think it probably depends on the context, but it really doesn't. I think perhaps make too much sense to think about the gut without thinking about the microbes that live there, because. Right. Really, other than the job of the microbiome, what happens in the gut is largely the absorption of water from fecal matter. Um, okay. It's really about what the microbes are doing there in they conjunction are, with the immune cells. That is the gut cells. function. The yeah. microbiome is the gut function. And then the, uh, another, uh, just to kind of lay all of this out, another mm. core um, <laughs> piece of vocabulary and reality that, that we need to know is um, what I've heard you describe as your fave. The vagus nerve. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Um, Yes. So the vagus nerve, it's technically the 10th cranial nerve, which means it's a nerve that comes out of the brain, uh, out of the skull. And it is this beautiful, I have an image of it in my book. Um, It's beautiful. wandering nerve mm-hmm. and it's called vagus from the latin root of vague vagabond wandering and it does wander one wanders throughout your body so it, it goes down the back of your throat it loops up in up around the ears crosses down behind the, the the voice box it connects into your heart into your lungs into your liver into your stomach into all of your major organs before kind of rounding out in the gut. So it's this direct physical relationship between the body and the brain. And and I think the main, one of the most important things to understand is that most of the direction of information 
is going from the body up. So it's not simply that it's about the brain telling the body what to do. The vagus nerve seems to be the main way in which the brain is getting an understanding of the internal conditions of the body Mm -hmm. in order to interpret that and then to make a decision about a behaviour. So it's this constant taking into account of the information that's happening inside the body, you know, largely unconsciously, to make a decision about what you should do next. And the reason that that's so important, I think, is about understanding that relationship between that and our emotionality, mm-hmm. because our emotionality is, is anchored in our bodies. And part of that is going to be about what your body is telling your brain about how the situation or the contextual information is being perceived and understood. And, you know, I've seen the map and it's wonderful. And I've also heard you on on your podcast on, on BBC Radio 4, uh, Made of Stronger Stuff, like just kind of describe this root <laughs> of, of the, the vagus nerve. What's so interesting about it also just to kind of step back and think about mm. You know, this is language that is new. It's science that it's that is new, but mm. it's knowledge that we've had, right? So if I would say to someone, I was nervous, right? Mm-hmm. I felt nervous. What are mm-hmm. the components of that? As you say, it goes through the, the throat. My throat tightens up, right? Your mm-hmm. voice gets strained. Your stomach feels queasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we we have experiences of those connections, we do. And it's it's partly the way in which we have disembodied psychology or emotionality from the rest of the organism, mm-hmm. which has landed us, I think, in, I guess, a lot of hot water that it's it's really undermined our ability, I think, first to understand what we're feeling and how we're feeling, but also certainly thinking about therapeutically, it's meant that for the last 400 years since Descartes set up his dualism, we have been ignoring. I think therefore I am. I think that's a a soundbite of what Descartes meant. But yes, it's it's the soundbite we've lived with. (laughs) And and in an extraordinary way, because Mm -hmm. what we don't really think about, about that statement is actually Descartes was setting out his case for the existence of of the soul, but it was hugely influential on other spheres of of existence and and life and uh, professional and academic life, including medicine and what later became psychiatry and psychology, so that we understood the mind to be separate from the brain. We disembodied the mind from the organ that underpins it. And we are, I think we are only just coming out of that phase. And it's partly the research around the microbiome, nutritional psychiatry that is helping us to bring back together, to reunite the mind, the brain and the body. Yeah, to reunite ourselves, our sense of ourselves. I mean, also in terms of... um you know, application or therapeutic implications, if we understand these connections, we can also, I mean, and, 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 mm-hmm. this is a lot of what you're working on, then we can, mm. we can have some agency in regulating and tending this. Absolutely. Dynamics. And one of the, the big issues at the moment, the very, very big concerns 
in terms of things like rates of depression. So depression rates are going up and up and up and prescription rates are going up and up and up. But recovery rates aren't great. Most people who will have a diagnosis of depression, 50% will continue to have symptoms. And 30% in some assessments, 30% of people with a diagnosis of depression have what's termed treatment resistant depression. So even though we've had these apparently effective medications and treatments, people aren't getting better. So we've had to kind of reassess our understanding of the causes of depression. And this brings us back to the dualism, because we certainly think that for some people, their depression is largely driven by immune activation or inflammation. It's this contribution of the body. You know, it's not just about the way that you think or about unprocessed trauma. Like I'm a psychologist. I, you know, These things are important. But we have to bring the body into the conversation because for some people, the major contributing factor of their depression isn't simply going to be their experiences. It's going to be about the underlying biological processes that are driving this this difficulty for them. And that means we have to include the body in our understanding of what happens in psychology and psychiatry. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with psychologist Kimberly Wilson. All of this is giving a whole new meaning to this thing that any of us might have heard our grandmothers say, you are what you mm-hmm. eat. You are mm-hmm. what you eat. Um, if we, this new knowledge, this fun, how this functions, then, then we understand the importance of how we fuel and nourish and feed the gut mm-hmm. and our system. And so I hear you, you know, you are working again to add to our lexicon in new fields, nutritional <laughs> neuroscience, nutritional psychiatry. Um, I, I have all these white places I want to go with you. Um, sometimes when people write about you, um, you know, have interviewed you or written about you in the UK, um, they will comment on the fact that, you know, you you became known to many people there and probably here through um, the Great British Bake Off, mm. being a finalist in that. And so here's something a reporter wrote in The Times. Thankfully, she sees no compromise between being a lover of cake and safeguarding your brain health. <laughs> So, which I think I think is important because I think sometimes, often, when we step into this, and now, of course, not necessarily with all of this context, but there is a new awareness that we have been eating badly mm. and that we can take charge of this. And some of that brings its own kind of stress and also reductionism to our relationship to food. Yeah. And it's really about, I think, disentangling the contributions of food ink, I suppose, you know, mm-hmm. kind of food manufacturing, uh, food production, industrialization of food and the drive for commercial profit in food and individual intake. And I think a lot of the conversation around poor diets places the emphasis and the totality of the responsibility unfairly on the individual when actually there's a greater contribution Mm -hmm. 
made by government policy, institutional nutrition, so what we're feeding people in schools, in hospitals, in prisons, um, and the role of advertising and those sorts of things on, on food. And so it's not simply that we're sending people out into a fair playing field because actually the odds are stacked against people in terms of choosing foods that are going to be nourishing and and beneficial for them. And and there are clear connections now between diet and depression, correct? Yeah, it's... it's, So in, in terms of depression, what we have are a range of pieces of evidence in different parts of the scientific literature. So What the epidemiological evidence shows us is that the more you adhere, generally, the more you adhere to a healthy diet, and healthy is really broadly, we can just say a whole food diet. So whole grains, nuts, seeds, fish, leaner meats, uh, fruits and vegetables, that kind of thing. Um, Non-industrial whole foods. Um, The lower your risk or the more protection you have from later development of depression even when you're controlling for things like income, uh, family status, you know, the type of job you have and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it might be about the lack of fibre having an impact on immune function and inflammation. It could be about the role of depletion of nutrients because the more processed a food becomes, the more depleted it becomes in in nutrients like B vitamins, which are essential for brain health, like omega-3 fatty acids, which are essential for the structural properties of, of brain cell membranes and so forth. So we could be talking about the impact of nutritional deficiencies. Um, We could be talking about the impact of blood sugar spikes on cortisol production and how that affects your brain and your mood. So bringing this all together, yes, we have at least a compelling case for more research, but certainly for greater understanding of what's happening in relation to the role of food and nutrition in, in our brain and mood health. And and in, in nutritional neuroscience and nutritional psychiatry, I mean, you also are a practicing psychologist. Are, I, I am also aware of professionals who are bringing this knowledge into how they work with patients. Mm. I mean, so that's not a study, but I mean, do you, are you mm-hmm. also having mm-hmm. this experience um, with actual people? Yeah. So one of the mm-hmm. the way that I work mm-hmm. is to, as I say, whole body mental health. And so as well as doing a psychological assessment on or a therapeutic assessment, as all psychologists will do, I will ask my patients for a sleep diary. I will uh, for, for five days, a five day sleep diary. And I will ask them for a at least a three day uh, food diary. And I, I have a degree in nutrition and I have access to Nutritics, which is a nutritional assessment software. So I, I personally am able to have a look at how they're eating. And if I suspect then that part of their eating is contributing to how they're feeling. I have a dietitian that I work quite closely with who I'm able to refer them to. So they're working with a network of people to support their mental health. So it's about, let's see if we can understand what is contributing to how you feel. How much of it is the fact that you get four hours sleep per night? And can we address that? How much of it might be that you are surviving on chocolate cupcakes and coffee. How can we improve that? And then how much of it is about the way that you think or the quality of your relationship or this thing in your past that you haven't been able to face. And that's going to give us a much better opportunity to hit the right target 
right? If we mm-hmm. can understand what the causes are, then we have a much better opportunity to intervene in an effective way. Um, this is a this is just a specific question, but it was something that struck me when I looked at. Um, you know, I think stress is also something that's all around us and in us, and and we live in it. <laughs> we live, these last few years, and mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. we live in a an unimaginably stressful world, right? And that too is part of our experience of the world, often below the level of consciousness. One of the things that I found so interesting, I was reading you, I think this was from one of your blogs, is that uh, the fight or flight. So we're living in a state of uncertainty and very mm-hmm. reasonable fear about all kinds mm-hmm. of things, right? And so that's our fight or flight response. I see amygdala actually where the vagus nerve goes through the amygdala, right? And one of the things you, you pointed out, this is so interesting to me about food, is that mm. when we're in that fight or flight mode, when our amygdala is in charge, which I think for a lot of us is a lot of the time right now, mm-hmm. um, it shuts down digestion, but also that the brain is a very hungry organism, and I think I'm saying this right, that the brain will actually take the nutrition it needs to be fighting, which is not necessarily what we need to be grounded and healthy. And I'm not sure that I'm paraphrasing that correctly. Um, So your brain is an extraordinarily hungry organ, and it is, you know, it really punches above its weight in terms of the amount of calories it needs in relation to its proportion of body weight. So the very, very famous figure you will hear lots and lots of people say is your brain is about 2% of your overall body weight, but it uses somewhere between 20 and 25% of your energy when your body's at rest. So of the roughly 2,000 calories per day that your body that needs. That it's our brain burning those calories, which is fascinating. A big chunk yeah. of that, the biggest proportion of that is your yeah. brain. And with that comes a huge nutrient demand. You need nutrients to make dopamine. You need nutrients, vitamin C, B12, phosphorus to make serotonin. You need choline from eggs to make acetylcholine. So you need nutrients just for your brain to function well. You need fatty acids and choline to make the, the membranes and, and for your nerves to signal and, and, you know, talk, communicate with one another. So that's your normal, if you assume that's your normal kind of distribution of nutrients. But what happens when you're stressed is that that is your body's alarm signal. It is the emergency signal. It is shut everything down and focus on survival signal. And so what will happen is that your stress hormones also need nutrients, right? Your Mm. stress hormones Mm -hmm. are also composed of nutrients. And so your stress hormones get first dibs, first allocation, because it's a survival system on those nutrients, which is going to leave your brain and the rest of your body depleted. And this seems to be one of the reasons, or this is kind of one of the theories underlying why uh, we see an improvement in stress management with nutritional supplementation. And again, this is quite useful information for a planet that's been in crisis. I mean, I would say just for the last two years, but with the invasion of Ukraine, it's incredibly stressful, certainly in Europe at the moment. This is important information in terms of how we the strategies that are available to us to manage our stress on an everyday everyday basis and kind of understanding this as a gener that we've been a few gener i mean really i think since the 50s 60s we've been in the west and now we have 
have taken our pathologies to the rest of the mm-hmm. world. Um, yeah. We haven't been practicing whole body mental health. We, mm-hmm. we, we haven't been eating well. We've messed up our microbiomes. I mean, I'm curious when you look at you know, our world also, which, again, there's so many things to point at, but there's also just generally this crisis of depression and anxiety, and very much so in the young. I'm the generation who grew up of parents born, you know, got married in the 50s. The discovery of, you know, macaroni and cheese out of a box, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I mean, we didn't actually, you know, I, th- I think iceberg lettuce is the closest thing I got to anything actually green from the ground. <laughs> um, I ate a lot of cheese whiz, and we drank um, Coke or Dr. Pepper with every meal. Everyone I knew mm-hmm. did this in the middle of America. This is not how I eat now, but it strikes me as a way that, that we don't bring this perspective and this knowledge into our, our public deliberation and investigation mm. of what we've how we've distorted our bodies and 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 that is being passed on generationally but and if we don't bring that analysis in then we also don't address um what can be addressed fully mm. i guess we should start with saying that of course these aren't the only nutrition isn't the only cause and and cure of mental health concerns and i think we need to be careful not to lay the responsibility fully to the individual but my concern now is that the very poor quality of the average diet is contributing to the kind of poor architecture or the greater structural vulnerability of brains in the first place. Yeah. So in the UK, for example, the NHS, the National Health Service, recommends that everybody should eat two portions of fish per week, of which one should be uh, fatty fish, mackerel and herring and those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. Um, But we know that the average adult in the UK is getting one portion of fish a month Mm -hmm. and less than 5% of children are getting the recommended intake of of fatty fish. And it's it's very unlikely that they're supplementing. And those are growing brains, right? Those those are are forming brains. Brand new, Mm -hmm. rapidly developing brains Mm -hmm. that aren't getting the structural components required for good brain architecture and resilience. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at these increasing rates of depression in developmental disorders in children, in externalizing behaviors, in mood and affect disorders. And we're looking around and we're wondering why children seem to be so unwell and increasingly unwell. And we lay the blame at social media, which certainly does need to take some of the blame and and the various stresses that come with modern life. We must, I think, be thinking about the structural foundations how if we're thinking you know almost about buildings how strong are the mm-hmm. foundations if the stresses are going to come anyway how strong are the foundations and the foundations of a healthy brain lie in a healthy diet short break. More with Kimberly Wilson. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, how will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? 
Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the psychologist Kimberly Wilson, a practitioner on the emergent field of whole-body mental health. She has been guiding us through fascinating frontiers of learning about the ecosystem that is the human body. She helps explain the underlying mechanisms and the mental health implications of advice that is suddenly out there everywhere about eating plant foods and fiber, fatty acids, and fish. She's been describing the gut-brain connection, the vagus nerve, and therapeutic connections now being drawn between depression and food, and why, in light of all of this, the language of mental health is itself too small. I would like to ask you about a couple of um, components of our bodies, neurotransmitters, that, mm. that are words everyone knows now connected to mental health. And I also think that there are more expansive ways to understand these things that you can kind of let us in on. And one mm-hmm. of them is serotonin. Mm-hmm. I think this is one thing a lot of us, and I also have have had a serious clinical depression. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for um, antidepressant medication, which worked for mm-hmm. me. But it's not simple, and we keep learning what we don't know. Mm. No, it, it's not simple at all. And um, and in fact, we're not tremendously sure what serotonin does. So the serotonin is a, a neurotransmitter, so a, a chemical messenger in the brain that is related to mood regulation. And the serotonin hypothesis was a rather straightforward hypothesis, which is that you need serotonin in your brain in order to feel good. And therefore, if you have more, you are, you will feel better. Right, and if you right. do not have enough, then you will feel worse. And so the most common antidepressant medications are SSRI, so selective yeah. serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And they work by preventing essentially the recycling of serotonin. And and so the theory is that it leaves more serotonin available for that second neuron, the receptor neuron, to pick up and to send on its message of feel goodness. However, (laughs) that doesn't seem to be the way that it works in practice Mm. and simply in in the rate of treatment-resistant depression, right, so that we're increasing the availability of serotonin in people's brains and it doesn't seem to be doing the trick, Um, or at least not for everybody. And you've also written about how serotonin to be flourishing or doing what it Mm -hmm. does best actually needs nutrient support. Yeah. So when people think about the role of nutrition in, in serotonin synthesis, they often think about tryptophan. And absolutely, tryptophan is essential. Tryptophan is an amino acid, so it's a kind of piece of a protein. Mm-hmm. And it gets converted into serotonin and then onto into melatonin. But in order to do that conversion, the brain requires other nutrients, vitamin C, phosphorus, I think B6, B9, in order to make that conversion, um, iron it needs. And so if you do not have those nutrients, then your synthesis is going to be impaired. But the other thing, and I did a, a series of videos on my Instagram about this for people about serotonin, is 
the biggest thing probably that you can do to improve the function of serotonin in your body is to manage your stress. And, you know, again, some of the things that you prescribe for, for example, minimizing stress or working with stress are mm. are things that are free. <laughs> Fresh air, natural light, mm. sleep, rituals, the quality of our relationships. Um, mm. You also talk about arguments for limiting exposure to the news as a therapeutic intervention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, I, I and I have to say, like, I or or probably to social media or those two things are synonymous these days. I have to say one of the most fascinating podcasts I listened to that you did was on dopamine, another neurotransmitter mm. that we is a word that we toss around. Um, I certainly associate dopamine with that dopamine hit one gets from getting a notification or going online, um, being on social media. It was absolutely terrifying and illuminating to hear you talk about the importance of dopamine, not as a high, but it just as the one of the things that helps us decide to get out of bed in the morning, mm. that helps with our overall pleasure in life. And what you explained is that what, what disrupts dopamine or what plays with dopamine actually works mm. to diminish our, the baseline of that mm. basic energy we have for life. Is that a correct way that I've said that? And that to yeah. me, that to me is the biggest argument I've heard for working with ourselves and our children with these technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Forget about the fact that they're buying us. They are messing with our baseline sense of well-being mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on a minute-to-minute basis. And really augmenting how pleasurable everyday life feels, you know, how it feels just to be in your body walking down the street, how Mm. it feels to be sitting and talking to your friends in a way that I don't think we fully understand. We haven't had a a full sense of the repercussions and the downstream effects at all. But this constant opportunity to have validation, you know, lovely piece of dopamine there, or a quick piece of entertainment, Mm -hmm. a funny joke, a sweet story, all of those in a way, which is a kind of binge-like pattern. Mm -hmm. The question mark is, what does that do to our ability to kind of sit and pay attention to someone in a conversation? Our ability to focus on a piece of work that we need to get done that doesn't seem particularly interesting in the moment but is important for our long-term goals. I don't think we have that information in but it's certainly something to be cautious about and to be wondering about and then there's the kind of practical part which is the I think it's called the technoference which is that simply having access or having your your phone in sight And particularly when you're talking about something of emotional meaning and resonance, lowers the quality of your interaction. Mm. So if you are sitting with somebody and your phone is there, just looking at your phone, knowing that it's there, lowers the quality of your connection with the person that's in front of you. Uh, That is is deeply worrying. Gravity. Um. Yeah, and I I want to test um, something out on you. This feeling Mm. I have right now, 
I'm, I'm also in my work really interested in how what goes on inside us reflects outside us, right? It reflects mm-hmm. in our presence in the world, reflects in our life together. And I feel like you could look at so many things that are happening in the world that we have many ways to analyze and say that that our individual nervous systems and our collective mm-hmm. nervous system, mm-hmm. that these things are in massive distress. And, mm-hmm. and right, we are in a civilizational fight-flight-freeze moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. I test mm-hmm. that out on you. No, that's a, that's a really interesting idea. And there's a, there's a researcher called Captain Joe Hibble, which is just a fantastic name to start with. Yeah. Um, and But he has this... Um, anthropologic understanding he has an uh, it takes an anthropologic look at the role of fish oils um <laughs> in the world and so for example he he says you know the the symbol for christianity is the fish right yeah. um and is it somehow this piece of collective unconscious this understanding that there's something about this food which is associated with calm which is associated with clear thinking, which is associated with peacefulness that gets (laughs) translated in this symbol. And whether you think that's valid or not, it's a very interesting idea because, you know, bringing it back to the prison studies, is this what we see? You know, you improve people's nutrition with vitamins and minerals and these fatty acids and they become calmer and they're more able to think more clearly. And they have this distance between the antecedents and their behavior. They have a little moment where they can choose their response. And Mm -hmm. if there's anything that is going to be conducive to solving of our collective problems, it's the capacity to sit down, to manage our emotions and engage with minds that are different from us. But what that absolutely requires is that our brains are working well. You know, in order to solve humanity's problems, many as they are, what we need are well-functioning brains. And the big worry for me and, and lots of people like me who are kind of looking at this research is that the way that we're living and the way that we're eating is effectively and persistently undermining the quality of our brain architecture and therefore our ability to think and process and problem solve. Hmm. Something else that occurs to me when I think about this, the connections, the connectivity, the interactivity that you're seeing and and sharing the microbiome, the the vagus nerve, um, the the direction that that goes, often body to brain and not just brain to body. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the language that we've used, I think this language of wholeness, right? What, what do you say? Whole body mental health that we, mm-hmm. um, I feel like our descendants will look at a phrase like mind, body, spirit and think how quaint and primitive that was <laughs> right? like those were separate compartments and you could be working yeah. with one of them and put the other one to one side and that's fascinating right that mm. mind and body and spirit emotions conscience behavior consciousness of there's i don't know if there's a trauma specialist named resma menicum who's worked a lot with racialized trauma in the body and mm-hmm. really mm. really mm-hmm. really important and wonderful ways and he calls the vagus nerve the soul nerve Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think this has been the real 
contribution of, again, another relatively young field of study called psychoneuroimmunology. Mm. Because one of the things that we understand, so if we're thinking about depression, and if you look at the causes, the known risk factors of depression, you know, it is parental illness or parental stress. It is poverty. It is um, uh, adverse childhood experiences. It's experiences of trauma, of accidents, of, of physical injury. So there's this plethora of events and behaviours and actions and relationships that lead to a an increased risk of depression. But what seems to underlie all of these things is this stress system modulated activation of the immune system, right? Yeah. Yeah. All of those factors switch on your stress hormones. Your immune cells have receptors for your stress hormones. Your immune cells get activated. And with chronic activation of your immune system, that can lead to, you know, to get a bit technical, the, the loosening of the tight junctions and the blood-brain barrier, cytokines cross over, and you've got neuroinflammation and mm. depression. So all of these things come together we cannot think of them separately from the body if we think if you're saying the thing that's causing you depression is is the quality of your relationship that's not outside of you mm-hmm. it's the way in which your body is permeable to the environment that the environment is affecting you on a cellular level and that that is affecting your mood and how you feel and how you perceive the world because the way you look at the world changes when your mood changes so yes it's going to be a kind of ridiculous hangover, a kind of antiquated way of thinking about the world is to think of these things as separate. And I think the sooner we can start to think of them as integrated and therefore to start treating them as integrated, the better off we will all be. Do you think that you kind of walk through down the street or through your life differently with this understanding that you have of of your second brain, which is your mm. your understanding of that is more developed than in most of us, the or the or the fact that you are my, more microbial than human cells <laughs> at, at any given time. Do, do, does that register in you in concrete ways? Sometimes. So uh, yes and no. So um, last week I was furiously angry, uh, stomping around London at, at lunchtime um, over something that I knew even at the time, even in. The you know within the cloud of my rage was just a minor inconvenience, <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to work it out. So you know I did I had I'd managed to hold on to enough of my thinking apparatus to be like this is, seems like an outsized response to yeah. a minor inconvenience. Um, what's going on? And I realised it was simply that I was very hungry mm. and I needed to have mm. some lunch, mm. and then my cortisol dropped and I was I felt better. So I still get caught out by this thing, and, and I think that's really important to understand, which is that we're not rational. We're, you know, humans love to think that we're rational human beings, but our decisions, our feelings, our behaviours, our actions towards other people might be affected by unconscious qualitative information that's coming through our bodies that we're acting upon. Mm. So that's always something to hold on to. So a very practical place to start is what's ha- what is happening in my body? How well slept am I? Am I hydrated? How have I been eating in the last couple of days? Can I attend to those things and then see how I'm feeling? 
Kimberly Wilson has a private psychotherapy and nutrition practice in central London. She is co-host of the BBC Radio 4 podcast, Made of Stronger Stuff. And she's the author of How to Build a Healthy Brain. Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Check, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Padre Gautuma, Gautam Shrikishan, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, Amy Chatelain, Cameron Musar, and Kayla Edwards. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.